series, How to Adult, um, which is really exciting. Um, I've really enjoyed the topic so far, and I know some great conversations have been generated um, and have been happening in life groups and at church over the, the last month or so. Um, I actually want to start tonight's message by asking you if you've got a smartphone to open up your calculator app for a second. We're going to just do a little bit of an exercise. <clears throat> so... Many of us in the room will work for something like 40 years or so of our adult lives. Um, So keep the number 40 in your head. And also, um, now that's going to vary a little bit, obviously, because some people choose to be full-time mums or dads, um, and there's, you know, other people that volunteer or whatever, but this is just a bit of a rough exercise. So keep 40 in your head. Um, Also, the average salary in South Australia, I looked it up this week, is $75,000. Um, Now, not everyone is going to work full-time. Some people um, may choose careers that they really love but don't pay quite as much. So let's be a bit more modest and just reduce that to 50,000. What I want you to do, though, um, is to calculate those two numbers together. So multiply them together. So 40 times 50,000. So you're working out how much the average person, say, is going to earn in their lifetime. What amount did you guys get? $2 million. That's a lot of money. Um, Are you surprised by that? Like I said, it's a very approximate exercise and that may may be a lot less for some people. On the other hand, if you choose a career, you really make it in that career, that might double. Um, And if you get married, that means your household income is going to be much higher again. Um, So that's, that's pretty staggering, actually. And the purpose of that, the reason that I got you guys to do that, is to remind us of a few things. As Australians, we have begun our lives not only in incredible comfort, but we've also begun our lives with amazing earning potential. We are incredibly blessed that we are born into a a world and an immediate situation where we are able to do that, um, almost without exception um, in Australia, at least the possibility for that is there. Now, you might have heard me say in previous sermons that if you're in this room, you're in the top 5% richest people in the world, simply by nature of having been born in Australia. I wanted to make sure that that's accurate because I have said that statistic a number of times, so I checked it again this week. And actually, if any of us end up with that 50000 salary that we just um, kind of based that, that sum on, we'd actually be in the top 1% of the world's richest people. That's crazy. So this opens up a whole lot of questions for us. For like, um, how can we make the most of the incredible opportunities that are before us? Or maybe should we be trying to make the most of those amazing opportunities that are before us? Or if millions of dollars are going to pass through my hands, through your hands, throughout your life, how much of that is going to stick? And how much of it will you be giving away? And also questions like, how does following Jesus actually change our view of work and money? So these are some of the questions we're going to look at tonight. So like I said, in case you've been away for a few weeks, we're continuing in the series called How to Adult. And as you can guess, tonight is on really work and money, saving, spending, all that sort of stuff. And I want to talk tonight about three surprising ideas that the Bible gives us about work and money. The first of these, so if you're taking notes, the first of these is work isn't a means to an end, it's an end in itself. All right? Work isn't a means to an end, it's an end in itself. 
Now, because I began tonight with an opening illustration about money, I might have left you with a false impression that work is mostly about money, and it's not. See, money is one of the many great benefits of working, but if we follow Jesus, we need to understand that even if there was no money attached to work, work in and of itself would still be a good thing. If you've got your Bible, or um, again, a Bible app, Open up to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 17 to 19. In fact, we're going to be looking at a lot of scriptures tonight. I'm in the New Living Translation for, I think, all of the scriptures that I've chosen. So um, switch that one on if you're keen to follow along word for word. Um, but Genesis chapter 3, 17 to 19 is where we're going to start. I've also got it on the screen, but good to have it open in front of you as well. So for Christians, this passage I'm about to read is often the one that comes straight to mind when we think of work, particularly if we've had a hard week at work and we're, you know, we're feeling exhausted or things have been a bit tough. We tend to think of this passage or the ideas that are expressed in this passage. So Genesis 3, 17 to 19. And this, sorry, the context for this as well is that Adam and Eve have, have just sinned, right? God's given them this beautiful garden um, and he's given them a choice um, whether to obey him or to disobey him. They've just chosen to disobey him. So that's the context of the conversation happening here. So to the man, God said, since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. All your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. <clears throat> By the sweat of your brow, you will have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. For you were made from dust, and to dust you will return. So we can see here in this passage that it's because of Adam and Eve's decision to disobey God that the earth has been cursed, and so has our work. Work was quite a focus in that passage, as you can see. So the earth, the world and our work lives have been cursed because of Adam and Eve's sin. As a result, work is now a lot harder. We've got thorns and thistles to contend with and the sweat of our brow to contend with uh, and workplace anxiety and overbearing bosses and boring meetings and overtime and add to that list anything that you don't particularly like about work or study or that you consider a curse about work or study. Now, all of that's true and we need to keep this in mind as we think about work. But by going straight to Genesis chapter 3, we've actually skipped a bunch of stuff. We've gone, we've kind of raced ahead and we've missed something. Because if we actually step back a chapter and we go back into chapter 2, something really important about work was said. So let's have a look at that. So flick back a chapter, Genesis chapter 2, just verse 15. It says this, The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. So that's, that's all. Um, that I was intending for us to look at in chapter 2. The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. So, we've gone back in time. The curse hasn't happened at this point in, in chapter 2. And yet, here is God actually putting Adam and Eve in the garden to watch over it and to tend to it. Other translations will use words like to cultivate the garden, to care for the garden, to protect the garden. In other words, before there ever was a curse, there was already work. And that work was good. That work was good. Work is still good. For us right now, work is still good. It has been changed by the curse. We need to keep that in mind. And so as a result, it can be harder. It can be frustrating at times. But work is still fundamentally good. We know work is good because God made work before the curse came along. In fact, we can learn even more about work if we go back another chapter. So we started in chapter 3. We've gone back to 2. Now let's go back to 1. 
And it's just verse 28 I want to look at here. So Genesis 1, 28. Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Now, this passage can be misunderstood. Some Christians, sadly, have used it to justify abuse of the environment. Um, but I think probably more often than that, critics of Christianity have used it to say that the Bible teaches destruction of the environment. And that's certainly not true either. So neither of those two things are actually true. For Adam and Eve to govern the earth and to reign over it means for them, what God had in mind when he said that is for them to turn the entire planet into a Garden of Eden, to tend and protect for the garden until that, that state of affairs extends throughout the planet. That's what God had in mind. And we also know from the book of Revelation, so we've you know, talked a bit about Genesis, but the other end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, talks about the ultimate destiny of the planet. And in that book is a city. So God had in mind not just a garden, but a city. We could even say perhaps a garden city. A garden city is the ultimate destiny of this planet, of the project of humanity governing and reigning over planet Earth. That's God's dream. And we could take this in all sorts of directions. That's got all sorts of relevance for things like environmentalism and sustainable architecture and, you know, name your, your, the topic that you're passionate about. We could take this in all sorts of directions. And it's amazing how the Bible is so relevant in speaking into these things, even in 2019. Uh, but I do want to stick with the topic of work because that is our topic tonight. The point I'm wanting to make here is that even from the very first chapter of the Bible, God's dream for humanity was work. He actually intended work from the very start. Purposeful, redemptive work that turns the raw material of planet Earth into healthy, flourishing civilizations with culture, with language, uh, art, music, food, philosophy, all the beautiful things that make up civilization. And this isn't some kind of utopian dream to show off the greatness of humanity. If you know much about... Um, about 100 years ago, in fact, 150 years ago, there were some pretty... Um, uh, not even that long, actually. Basically, in the 20th century, some of the worst disasters happened in, in human history. Genocide, all sorts of stuff. And it's because humans alone, apart from God, tried to set up a utopia of one kind or another. So what God has in mind is not some human-focused utopia. Actually, what he has in mind is something that only he can bring about. And the purpose of all of it is to showcase his beauty and his glory, not our beauty and our glory. If you know how the story ends in the book of Revelation, none of us are going to sprout wings and live on clouds and play harps. God's eternal dream called heaven, we, we call that heaven, is actually a renewed earth. It's a renewed earth. It's a new planet um, that is restored and perfect as it always was intended to be by him, where the plans of God are finally fulfilled. And so when we think about that, when we realize that in eternity, we're also going to be working because there's going to be an earth to look after. Um, if you think about the, um, some of the parables that Jesus told, he often told stories and parables to illustrate the fact that if we're faithful with what God has given us in this life, then he's actually going to give us greater responsibilities in the life to come. So there's work ahead of us in eternity. That's pretty exciting. It's not just going to be like 24-7 Hillsong. So there is work in heaven. There is work in heaven. Work is not just this thing that came about when the world was cursed and that we now just sort of have to put up with until heaven comes along. Work began before the curse came along and it will continue long after the curse has been lifted. Work is good. It's what we've been created for. 
Now, it's affected by the curse right now. Like I was sort of saying earlier, there's toil, there's sweat, there's frustrations, there's all sorts of those things too. But work is still a gift from God and it's something that we should pursue wholeheartedly. And that is why Paul said things like, and I'm not sure if I've got this passage up here. Yes, I do. Good. So that's why Paul said things like this. He said, work willingly at whatever you do, as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward and that the master you are serving is Christ. He also said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he said, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. It's possible for everything that we do, our work included, to be redemptive and to be done to God's glory. So work is not a means to an end. Work is in fact an end in itself. Work itself is a good thing. So this should transform the way that we think about work. Maybe for people who don't know Jesus or who maybe just don't have this perspective on work, work might simply be a means to an end. It might be the way that they are able to put their kids through private school. It might be the way to provide the week's supply of alcohol. It might be the way to save up for a luxurious retirement. Depends what you know, your thing is um, as to what you're sort of working towards. But for us as Christians, as followers of Jesus, it's not just what we spend our money on when our paycheck comes through that changes. It's actually our view of work itself because work is not just what we get out of it. Work is a fundamentally good thing. Work is an opportunity to glorify God. So when we work, we should aim to be the best employee or the best manager that we can possibly be. We should aim to be known as the most honest, the most humble, the most ethical the most competent person in our field, whatever it is that we're working at. And it, that, that goes for stacking supermarket shelves as well. It doesn't just, I'm not just talking about career ladders here. And all of this is not to advance ourselves, it's to advance the name of Jesus. So that was the first one. Work is not an, a means to an end. Work is an end in itself. A second, I think, surprising idea that the Bible gives us about this whole area of work and money and and all that sort of stuff is this. Work from rest, don't rest from work. Work from rest, don't rest from work. If that doesn't make sense yet, um, bear with me because I will explain it as we go. So another really important thing for us to understand from Scripture is that not only is work good, but rest is good as well. The Hebrew people, uh, if you know much about the Old Testament and the way that the Jewish people lived, they have a very long and um, quite um, rich tradition of rest or Sabbath. Sabbath is the word they use for rest. So one day in seven, they would take the time to rest and to be thankful for everything God had given them. And so for the Jews, it was a day of worship, but by worship, they didn't simply mean sing songs and gather in one place. It also meant to slow down and to celebrate Um, to spend time with the people that you love and to just take time to enjoy the beautiful life that God has given you. That's what Sabbath is all about. This also was not just sort of a nice suggestion that God gave them. It was actually one of the Ten Commandments. Rest is a discipline. It's a commandment from God. And so to remind us of that, we'll just look at Exodus chapter 20 very quickly. So Exodus 20 verses 8 to 11. So, remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. By the way, this is the Ten Commandments. This is where Moses has gone up onto the mount, uh, onto Mount Sinai, and he's received the Ten Commandments from God, and he's declaring them to the Jewish people. So, remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. You have six days each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. 
That, that includes you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, your livestock and any foreigners living among you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea and everything in them. But on the seventh day he rested. That is why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart as holy. Now again, when God gives this commandment, notice that he's not He's not pointing back to the curse, saying, you know, because the earth has been cursed, works really hard, so therefore you need to rest. No, he's actually pointing back to the creation. It says, for in six days, God made the heaven and the earth, and that's why you should rest, because he rested on the seventh day. He's pointing back to creation, because creation is where there was perfect serenity. There was perfect well-being. There was perfect peace. And so when we rest, when we Sabbath, we're actually pointing back to a perfect creation. So in other words, both work and rest are good things. We don't rest simply because work is hard. We rest because our need for both work and rest is actually built into the very fabric of the universe. It's the way God has created the universe that we live in and our bodies as humans and all the things that make us up. And he did this, um, he created in six days and he rested for one, he, set, he did that to set a pattern for us so that we would do the same, so that we would work for six days and rest for one. We've been made for both productivity and for tranquility. Productivity and tranquility, both of those are so important for us. Probably one of the biggest things that I've learned over the last five years in this role is actually the importance of rest, and the importance of self-care. Um, in the first few years, I would often work 60 hours or more in this role, thinking that I was doing God a favour. Um, and I came pretty close to burnout by doing that before realizing that really the best thing that I can give you guys is a healthy me. And that goes for anyone in any role, whether that's as a parent or as a, an employee or as a boss or, or whatever it might be. The best thing that you can give the people that you care for, the people that you're invested in, is a healthy you. And for that to happen, we need to prioritize rest. Now, rest is going to look a little bit different for all of us. It'll depend on our weekly schedule. It'll depend even on our personality and what actually feels restful for us and what doesn't. Um, there are some Christians, for example, who take very seriously the Jewish pattern of rest and actually still Sabbath one day in seven and are quite strict about that. Um, and that's fine. That's totally fine. Um, but when we're in Jesus, there's actually freedom for us to do that or for freedom for us to do Sabbath in a variety of ways. Um, the reason I say that is because Paul himself says in Romans chapter 14, he says, some think that one day is more holy than another day, while others think every day is alike. You should each be fully convinced that whichever day you choose is acceptable. So what he's saying is for Christians, there's freedom around how we do Sabbath. The important thing is obviously that we do Sabbath. Jesus said a similar thing. He said in Mark 2 verse 27, the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people and not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. So in, in Jesus' day, the Pharisees, the really religious people had made a big deal out of the very specific things of what they should be doing on the Sabbath. And it was almost as if they believed the Sabbath was needed to be served by humans. And Jesus is like, no, no, turn that around. Um, I've actually created the Sabbath to serve humans, as in we need rest. And that's why we need to practice Sabbath. So what's important isn't the exact day or even exactly what you do with that day, but the fact that we value this pattern of work and rest because that's what God's given us, because that's what we've been made for. And see, if, I guess if we take God out of the picture, we don't really have a map for these things. There's a lot of people, obviously, that don't necessarily believe in God today. 
Um, and as a result, like when we take God out of the picture, we could see all sorts of strange things about who we are as people or, you know, the way that the world is supposed to function. We maybe will see each, see each other or see ourselves as money-making machines. We might see our employees as money-making machines if we become a boss. Or we might see ourselves that way and work ourselves to the bone. Uh, on the other hand, that might not be, you know, what you're into. And so you might just think, oh, I want to live for pleasure. And so I'm going to work as little as possible. I live in a really wealthy country and it's got a really nice welfare net. I'll just kind of kick back and do what I can to not work as much as possible. But if it's true that God created us, then he actually knows what's best. And he knows that rest and work together are absolutely vital to our well-being as humans. For the people, and I know that there are people who sometimes get stuck on welfare because of long-term health problems or any sort of circumstance, and it doesn't take long before it's very difficult to see out of that because we're actually made for purpose. Like, work, work is given to us for the purpose that comes with it, not just the money that comes with it. All right, talking about work and rest, I find this diagram really helpful. I might have shown it in a previous sermon a couple of years ago. Um, it's a semicircle that basically shows there's supposed to be a rhythm between work and rest, like a pendulum swinging back and forth between work and rest. That's what we've been created to be able to do. And so in a culture like ours, which puts a very, very high value on work, we can tend to think of rest as an escape from work. Rest is something you do when you've exhausted yourself, when you're almost burnt out or you're just totally wrecked at the end of a week. And so, you know, we Westerners, we tend to rest from work. But... If I've understood the Bible correctly, I think God's pattern's actually the opposite. We're not supposed to rest from work. We're actually supposed to work from a place of rest. We're supposed to value rest in such a way that when we work, we're working from a place of refreshment. We're not just merely resting at the end of, you know, totally driving ourselves into the ground. All right. The final surprising idea that we'll look at um, that Scripture gives us about work is this. So if you're taking notes again, write this one down. It'll probably be in your life groups this week. Your money isn't yours. Your money isn't yours. Um, I had a profound revelation a few years ago. It was as I was thinking about a verse from the book of Job, which says, and you're probably familiar with this, you might not even know it's in the Bible, but naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. It's, I think, a fairly common saying, actually, in our culture. But it's from the book of Job. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I would depart. And as I thought about this, I realized, and maybe this does sound kind of obvious, and maybe you've already, you're across this, but when we came into this world, we came with absolutely nothing. And when we die, we can take absolutely nothing with us. So that the $2 million that you saw on your phone, or whatever the amount is that will pass through your hands in this lifetime, you can take none of that with you. You didn't come into the world with any of it, and you're not going to take any, uh, any of it with you. Between death and birth, we're going to have a lot of things in our possession. But after we're gone, they're actually going to pass on to someone else. So the car you drive, the house you live in, the, all the stuff that you collect, um, that's going to be in your possession for a short window of time. And then when you're gone, it's going to be someone else's. Have a think about that. As much as we might want to cling to the things that we get in this world that's actually ultimately a futile dream because we're just passing through. We actually can't own anything permanently. So for me, I don't know whether that's hit you at all, but for me when I realised that, it was a very profound thought. It changes the way that I think about my things, think about my possessions and about my money. 
See, we live, like I said before, in a fairly workaholic culture. Um, We really value work. The other thing that we value a lot is the individual. We're a very individualistic culture. And there's actually a lot of benefits to that. It really, individualism really pushes us to achieve in all sorts of areas, whether that's work or hobbies or pursuits of, of any kind. So individualism is fantastic for many things. Um, but one of the downsides to it is that we can become very self-centered. And so when we earn money and when we start to collect stuff, we tend to view that very much as mine. That belongs to me. And, and, and that's strictly how we often see our salary or our belongings. But see, as followers of Jesus, it should be very different for us. We should view everything we have as a gift from God, um, as basically on loan from Him. We're simply stewards of it for a time. It's all just a loan from God. And it comes to us not just so that we can use it on ourselves, but it actually comes to us with a responsibility attached to share that with others. Uh, Basil of Caesarea was a Christian leader He lived in the 300s, so we're talking, what, 1,700 years ago. This is like early church, church fathers, desert fathers kind of era. And he said this, a really profound quote. He said, That bread which you keep belongs to the hungry. That coat which you preserve in your wardrobe to the naked. Those shoes which are rotting in your possession to the shoeless. That gold which you have hidden in the ground to the needy. Wherefore, as often as you were able to help others and refused, so often did you do do them wrong. That's a pretty confronting quote. By the way, by the end of his lifetime, Basil opened a 300-bed hospital for the underprivileged. And our modern concept of the hospital actually was invented by him. Um, And if you don't believe me, Google it. It'll, like, if you Google the history of hospitals, something like that, Basil of Caesarea will feature in the very beginning of that. In fact, some people even trace... You know, we, we talk a lot about human rights, and they were, they were drafted last century. A lot of people actually point to quotes like this as the origins of the concept of human rights, that actually the poor have a right to our things. Um, it's a really interesting thought. But see, even the ideas of human rights, they go back before Basil, because they're in you know, the books that inspired people like Basil, the Bible, um, books like the book of Proverbs, we see very similar things written. Um, And these things run very counter to the logic of the ancient world. So Proverbs chapter 11 said, Give freely and become more wealthy. Be stingy and lose everything. The generous will prosper. Those who refresh others will themselves be refreshed. Or in chapter 19, If you help the poor, you are lending to the Lord and He will repay you. Isn't that profound? Like all the other religions of the ancient world saw God as being kind of powerful and uninterested in the poor, whereas God, the God of heaven and earth, actually has associated himself so closely with the poor. It's like if we lend to the poor, we're actually lending to the Lord. That's how closely he identifies with the poor. That's amazing. What about Jesus? He said things like this in Luke chapter 12. Sell your possessions and give to those in need. This will store up treasure for you in heaven. And the purses of heaven never get old or develop holes. Your treasure will be safe. No thief can steal it and no moth can destroy it. Paul said quite a similar thing. Um, I think I might have skipped one. Oh, sorry. I'm racing ahead now. I must have left one out. But in Acts chapter 20, Paul also said, I've been a constant example of how you can help those in need by working hard. You should remember the words of the Lord Jesus. It is more blessed to give. Than to receive. 
So as Christians, like compared to, I guess, all the other philosophies that might be out there competing with, with what God's got to say about money and about work, we should be thinking so differently. First, money is not the main reason that we work. Like you might have just recently gotten a job um, or want to be wanting to get a job or be sort of working, working your way towards something in terms of career. Um, and maybe predominantly you've got money in mind. That's particularly the case I know when I left school. I wasn't really concerned about the type of work. I was actually just, you know, keen for some money. But first of all, the Bible changes our perspective because work is not fundamentally about money. It's about the work itself. But more than that, when we get money... It's not as simple as saying that that's my money. It actually comes with a responsibility attached to be generous and to bless others, especially those who don't have as much. Um, As a bit of a side note, I find the debate about our aid budget an interesting one. So from time to time, it's debated how much as a nation should we give away. And Australia is a rich nation, and so I think we can actually be Uh, we can afford to be very generous with aid. But what I find interesting is that often it's people who are still fairly young and not paying any tax that are the ones that shout the loudest about this. And so, you know, they sound very very righteous, very ethical. But what they're really saying is, I'm a really good person because I want to give other people's money away. (laughs) And like I said, I think we should give more aid. I think as Australians, you know, we can be more generous because we're incredibly rich. But what if generosity didn't start with others? What if it started with me? What if I took responsibility for generosity? What if I followed the example of Jesus and didn't consider my money my own, but decided to be as generous as possible with it? Now, you might be squirming in your seat a little bit, um, feeling a little bit awkward or anxious with some of these ideas because they're very challenging. But anytime God gives a challenging commandment like this, there's a blessing attached to it. There's promises attached to it. So that's this passage here. So first, sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, 6 to 7. Remember this. A farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop. But the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. You must each decide in your heart how much to give. And don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure, for God loves a person who gives cheerfully. But can you see that concept there? Just like a farmer who might plant only one field, um, he's not going to see a huge crop. But if he plants his entire farm, he's going to see a massive crop at the end of that. And God says the same is true of generosity in whatever form we choose to practice that. Um, Jesus also said, Give and you will receive. Your gift will return to you in full. Pressed down, shaken together to make room for more. Running over and poured into your lap. The amount you give will determine the amount you get back. So if you choose to be generous, it's not like you're, you're saying farewell to, to money or to blessing forever. When we're generous, God is so generous in return. And I've seen that proved so true in my life. And I mean, I've heard a thousand testimonies about it as well. So there are promises and there are blessings attached to generosity. But as we look at all these verses, we consider this whole realm of generosity. It is very easy to think that it applies to people who are richer than us. Right? How many of you, I won't ask for a show of hands, but how many of you in your head have thought, oh, that's great for people who actually have money, not like me, when in fact we all, of course, have money. It's very easy to, to, in our minds, put that onto people who are richer than us. First of all, remember, if you're in this room, you are in the top 5% richest people in the world, so you are the rich. Um, maybe even the top 1%. Keep that in mind then as I read one last passage on generosity from the Bible. This is from 1 Timothy. Teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Now, 
Those who are rich in this world, that's me. That's everyone here. All right, we can't escape this. This is talking to us. Teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God, who richly gives us all that we need for our enjoyment. Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. By doing this, they will be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future so that they may experience true life. It doesn't get any clearer than that, does it? It doesn't get much more convicting either, but it certainly doesn't get any clearer. So here's some challenges that I want to give to you guys, and some of this I equally say to myself. If you're still working out how to adult, especially in the area of finances, then start to practice generosity. That's my challenge, start to practice generosity. If you don't start when you're young, you may never start. And I'm quite serious about that. You'll never wake up one day and think, oh, sweet, I'm finally rich, now I can start to be generous. Because every day that you wake up, you'll always know I could be richer still. Because, of course, that's always going to be true. More wealth will not make you more generous. The decision to be generous is what's going to make you generous. All right, I'll say that again. More wealth will not make you more generous. The decision to be generous is what will make you generous. So if you haven't got any set practices in place, then I really challenge you to start this week. Decide on an amount or a percentage, perhaps, and then start giving. Start giving to the local church. Start giving to mission overseas. Start giving to the poor, to the marginalised, to, you know, groups that you can see God is blessing, God wants to um, extend. Maybe, as well, there are other habits that you need to change so that you can start to practice generosity. Because sometimes it's not as simple as saying, I'm going to be more generous. It might be that our actual like our management of finance is a total mess. So, um, for example, if you're like a chronic spender, then confess that to some friends as a sin. Confess it as a sin, because it is a sin. It's idolatry. Confess it to some friends and get them to hold you accountable so that you can put your money to better things. If you're finished school and you're working, but you're living at home for free, then tell your parents you want to pay board. You got any kids here tonight, Andy? <laughs> that might sound a little bit strange, but we should, if we're adults, and by that I mean 18 and up, we should actually start taking responsibility, um, financial responsibility for our lives. And the reason I say this as well is because it's not just good for other people. Like, your parents aren't just going to be stoked about that. It's going to be really good for you as well because it's going to teach you good habits. It's going to teach you better financial stewardship. Um, If you've got debt, then prioritise that before you think about your next big purchase. Like, pay down that debt and get on top of it before you think about the next thing that you want to spend money on. So all of this stuff is really important because it sets us up to be able to live generously, which is what the Bible teaches us to do. Now, in a minute, we're going to move into a time of communion. So um, could I just invite the band, actually, to come back up again and just start playing? Um, I've just given like a whole lot of very practical instructions, like I've just listed off a whole bunch of stuff and maybe even made some people feel a little bit guilty. And so that's actually not the tone on which I want to end tonight's sermon. Because none of this, like when, we talk, when we're talking about work and rest and saving and finance and generosity and all this sort of stuff, none of this should come from a place of guilt. Because like we've just read in one of these passages, God loves a cheerful giver. 
He's not into compulsion. God never sets out to manipulate us or to control us in this way. He actually wants all of this stuff to come from a place of free choice on our part and generosity. As with all the things that Jesus tells us to do, it's not just some rule that he gives for the sake of rules. It's a lifestyle that he calls us to because it's the same lifestyle that Jesus himself lived. God just doesn't bark instructions from heaven. Like everything that God has ever told us to do, Jesus came to earth and already did in setting the example for us. And so just think about Jesus' life for a minute. Jesus was, um, he dedicated his life to feeding the poor. He dedicated his life to healing the sick and to practicing generosity everywhere that he went. And then in the ultimate act of generosity, he gave up his life for us. He gave up his life for the world. That was the ultimate act of generosity. And so this is actually the reason we should be generous, because we're following in the example of Jesus. He was amazingly generous, and to follow Jesus is to walk in his footsteps, to be just as generous as he was. It's also another way, by being generous, we can actually make the good news of Jesus make a whole lot more sense to people. Um, even in Australia, I've been reminded of this recently, um, the last couple of years, the Salvos is one of the few churches that people in Australia still really appreciate. Uh, and it's because of their incredibly generous work to the poor and to the people who need help. And so we can help make the good news of Jesus make a whole lot more sense for people when we are generous. It's such a powerful um, gospel witness. So as we share communion now, I want to just keep it really simple. As you come forward... As you take the bread, remember that Jesus called himself the bread of life. He gave himself to provide for all of our needs. And it's because of him that we can do the same for other people. We can provide for other people's needs because he's been so generous towards us. And then as you take the juice, remember that he poured out his blood for you. Jesus was ultimately generous. He poured out his blood for you. He gave up his life for you so that you can give your life up for others. So just reflect on those thoughts as you come forward to share communion. Take a piece of bread, take the juice, eat the bread on your own, hold the juice because we'll, we'll drink that together at the end. You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app. 